Hello, and welcome to a special end-of-year episode of Child USA's podcast, A Voice for the Kids. Today, Professor Marcy Hamilton, our founder and CEO, sits down with the incomparable Dr. Paul Offit of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, who is one of the world's leading experts in vaccinations. We interviewed Dr. Offit about COVID-19 back in August on episode three of our podcast. Now, in mid-December, Professor Hamilton sits back down with him to discuss vaccine updates and what our listeners should expect in the coming months. So here we have uh, Dr. Paul Offit, leading expert in the country on uh, vaccines and in particular for children's diseases. And, um, and also everybody's obsessed right now, but nobody knows what to think about the vaccine situation. So, um, so I wanted to just hear your views just you know, off the cuff, just generally, and then kind of narrow down in how should parents be thinking about their kids getting vaccinated in those issues? I, I, think, um, I think there's a distrust of the current administration, I, I, certainly regarding the science. The, the, and the, where this comes into play for vaccines is that um, when the administration wanted to push hydroxychloroquine as a treatment, as a wonder drug for COVID-19, they basically caused the FDA to, to cede to their whim. I mean, you could see it. And, and so the FDA approved the use of a product that had never been shown to work, that we now know doesn't work to prevent or treat the disease, and in fact is unsafe and that it causes cardiac heart toxicities. Then you could see with convalescent plasma, there was just a clear pressure by the administration to approve something again that hadn't been shown to work. And um, if you watch that press conference, I mean, you had to feel that the FDA was just buckling under to the whim of the administration. I mean, it, both, both uh, Secretary Azar and Commissioner Hahn both started their talk the same way. First, I would like to thank President Trump for his strong leadership. I mean, it was like a scene out of the Manchurian candidate. Um, so I think that's that's what the word, the phrase emergency use authorization means to people. It means approving things that haven't been tested. Um, that's not vaccines. I mean, the, the vaccine story is you have two, two vaccines which are likely to roll out, roll out, one on December 15th, Pfizer, the other on December 22nd, uh, Moderna, that have been extensively tested. I mean, the, the trial was 30,000 big for Moderna. It was 44,000 people for Pfizer, a proof that vaccines were safe and effective. Um, now, now let, let me stop you for a minute. So sure. those are, are those big numbers? How do we compare the 30,000 and 44,000 with other vaccine tests? Right. So, so if you look at uh, other sort of pediatric vaccines, the conjugate pneumococcal vaccine was a 35,000 person trial. The human papillomavirus vaccine was a 30,000 person trial. The rotavirus vaccine that we uh, developed at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was a roughly 70,000 person trial. So in the Johnson & Johnson trial that's coming up is about a 60,000 person trial. So the, these, the, the trials that are being done for this vaccine are typical of any pediatric vaccine. So if that's true, why not do what we always do for a vaccine, which is submit a biologics license application, get a license from the FDA, and get a recommendation then from the CDC. And the reason is, is the length of, of follow-up. That's the difference. And not so much for safety. Uh, for safety, and I think that's what most people are worried about, because most people yeah. that get this vaccine are healthy young people who don't think, who don't, are unlikely to die from this virus. The safety follow-up is two months after dose two. If you look at the serious side effects of vaccines, and there are serious side effects of vaccines, they invariably occur within six weeks of a dose. So I think I think what you're going to be able to say when this vaccine uh, rolls off the shelves is that, or off the assembly line, is that 
that it doesn't cause an, a relatively uncommon serious side effect when tested in tens of thousands of people. You can say that. Now that doesn't mean it's safe in 20 million people, um, which, is, uh, which is going to be evaluated after the vaccine is already approved in, in programs like the Vaccine Safety Data Link where you can pick up an event as rare as one in a million. So if there is a very rare serious adverse event, you'll know that, frankly, you'll know that in the 1A tier because the 1A tier, the first group to get this vaccine are gonna be essential workers and then people that live and work at long-term care facilities. That's 24 million people. So you'll know that before it ever gets to the general public. And then the, the real issue is efficacy. The FDA would never approve a product or license a product that had been tested for this short a period of time for effectiveness. So you're gonna know that this vaccine was effective within a month of giving the second dose, which is the peak immune response. And it's probably, it's the best efficacy. That said, it's about 95% effective against preventing disease, including serious disease. It's 90 plus percent effective in people over 65. It's almost 100% effective at preventing serious disease. I mean, it's miraculous. And although there may be a, a, a decline in effectiveness over time, it's still going to be pretty effective. And you're not going to do a two-year study to see how long it's effective for when 270,000 people just died this year. So I think that you're going to be able to say that this vaccine appears to be very effective in the short term and likely longer, that, it's, that it doesn't cause a relatively uncommon serious side effect when this vaccine rolls. And then it's going to be in millions of people before it ever gets to the general population. So you'll have a bigger safety portfolio. That's what you can say. So, and I guess maybe it's a, it's a silver lining that some of the first people to get it are healthcare workers. And so they'll know what to look for. They'll know they'll be, you know, be able to scientifically report how they feel. Uh, so, so that seems like a good thing. No, absolutely. I think, um, that's exactly right. And that's actually largely true of the trials. I mean, the trials also, a lot of uh, medical people participated in those trials. So, I mean, I looked through the data. I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, which meets on Thursday, this Thursday, to discuss uh, Pfizer's vaccine, and next Thursday, to discuss Moderna's vaccine. So, they sent us the original packet from Pfizer, which is basically just their application for approval. And then yesterday, or this morning, they sent us the, the FDA packet. So, I've gone through all those pages. So, I have a much better idea of this vaccine. And we've gotten our agenda for the Thursday meeting. So I think I, I have a sense of how this is all gonna play out. Well, which is to say, I take it that we're going to see shots in arms next week. I think that's very likely. That, that, yeah. That's pretty exciting. Um, but uh, the, there's not no testing so far, I take it with respect to kids. Yeah, so what, what um, Pfizer did was they went down to 16 years of age, and they actually are asking for an, an EUA approval down to 16 years of age. Then they've extended it down to 12 years of age, but there's so few children between 12 and 16 that they didn't ask for approval for that age group. Yeah. There actually aren't all that many between 16 and 18. There's only about 2,400 or so kids between 16 and 18. Pfizer, uh, Moderna, I know, is interested in doing a prospective placebo-controlled trial on 3,000 children, but again, between 12 and 18. So I think what we'll probably end up doing is working our way down to younger age groups over the next year um, mm -hmm. with, with this vaccine. Children are just, I mean, they're just not a priority here because people less than 21, although they make up about 26% uh, of the US population, make up 0.08% of the deaths, whereas nursing homes is 40% of the deaths. That's why wow. nursing homes are a first tier. Wow, so, so are you persuaded now? I mean, it seems to be the, the tide has shifted on schools being open. 
Are you confident that it, it's safe for kids to go to school now, given those amazing statistics? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take an unpopular point of view here, but what the hell? So I can just make sure you give my email address at the end so I can get all the hate mail. But the We'll I direct think, it right to you. Would you? Thank you. Um, the, the teachers are considered essential workers. They're considered essential workers for society, as are people in transportation or utilities or um, uh, um, people who work in grocery stores, pharmacies, water purification, etc. And so you need them for society to function. Now, teachers would argue we can teach virtually, but, but right. first of all, I think that teaching virtually is not the same as teaching on site. No. Secondly, I think that there are children often who are uh, identified as being abused, which is only identified in schools. And third, for some children, it's the only decent meal they get during the day. So I think I think in order for society to function, schools new, do need to function on site. Children are extremely unlikely to to be hospitalized or die from this. It's the teachers, and the teachers are the ones to worry about. And the teachers have been very reluctant to go back to because they say, you know, we're we're at high risk of dying. So here's what you do: do what Denmark does, which is to say, wear masks physically distance. I mean, do that. You right. can do that. Have the, the, They don't have the kids go from classroom to classroom. So you have these crowded halls, have the teachers go from classroom to classroom. Do the best you can to sort of separate off the the, uh, the desk. And, you know, anyone over three can wear a mask. That's oh, yeah. all doable. And then don't have a cafeteria. Have people eat at their desk. And, and although that may take some money put up by the schools, do that. Because I think if you if you want to be considered an essential worker and teachers are essential workers, then act like an essential worker and act like all the other essential workers who are actually are going back to work. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's necessarily unpopular. I think there are a lot of parents um, who've been pretty frustrated because they feel like their kids are safe and kids are malleable. They will wear a mask. Yeah, I, I mean, what do they know? <laughs> They're kids. Uh, it, you know, it, it's harder to get some adults to wear a mask. So yeah, yeah you've noticed that. Like, yeah, I have noticed that <laughs> shockingly. Uh, my son's down in Miami. It's, uh, it's quite amazing the people who don't think they need to wear masks. During this brief break, we would like to tell you about Child USA's newly launched child sex abuse membership portal. The portal is a curated list of books, videos, and online resources intended to help survivors heal, learn, and build resiliency in their lives. It is the only library made for survivors and created by leading child sex abuse experts. Googling for information on abuse can be overwhelming and at the end of the day, unhelpful. So Child USA has done the research to locate resources that will be the most helpful to you. Whether you are a survivor yourself or a family member or someone who works with children like a coach or a teacher, for $50, you can purchase yourself or a loved one a year-long membership to our portal. Visit childusa.org members to sign up. That's childusa.org members. Thanks. But, you know, I, I think that the, so, so perspective though, okay, let's say that we get all these early vaccinations going. Um, we're still going to be wearing masks for quite a while, aren't we? Like, yeah, I think what, what you don't know yet, and you're not going to know from these two trials is, what you'll know from these trials is you can prevent disease, mild, moderate, to severe disease. What you don't know is whether you can prevent infection where you don't have symptoms, but you still could be contagious. So that's really the better question. Does Do these vaccines prevent contagiousness? And, and that you don't know yet. And because okay. you don't know that yet, I think that you, we still are going to need to wear a mask and social distance until we get on top of this virus or until it becomes clear that the vaccine also prevents against that. But even if it prevents against that, it's not going to prevent against 100% of that. 
So I, right. I still think you need to wear a mask. So, so we still need, and, and ha, ha, I take it that, um, well, you know, uh, President-elect Biden was talking about a hundred day request for people to wear masks, you know, as of the day that he becomes president. I, I, I assume you back that idea? Yeah, I, I think what amazes me, and, and painful as this is to say, you actually have to credit this administration for making this vac these vaccines. It is, it is a, a tour de force scientifically. I mean, we just had this virus in hand with a sequence published in January. Now, 11 months later, essentially, you have the completion of two large phase three trials that show the vaccine is highly effective. These this novel vaccine strategies, messenger RNA strategy. That's amazing. I mean, not that it's a technological tour de force. On the other hand, wearing a mask and social distancing is not high tech. It's very <laughs> low tech and it's better. It's better. <laughs> if you ask me, when I go to the hospital and I'm on the hospital, I'm going to be on call in a couple of weeks. If I walk into a room with someone with COVID, you give me three choices. Number one, I can either stand six feet away. If I don't stand six feet away, then I have to, then I can either wear a mask or get a vaccine. Which, how would I rank those? Number one, stand six feet away. Those small droplets, which contain the virus, are not going to travel six feet. So I'm good. Or if I have to stand near someone to examine them, um, my choice would be a mask. If you have a surgical mask with th three layers, it's very hard for that, that five micron cron size droplet to get through those three layers and enter my nose and throat. Mm -hmm. If I don't wear a mask, and, I, and then my third choice is to get a vaccine. Remember, vaccines only work after you've been infected. I mean, the, the, now the, the small, small droplet does enter your nose and mouth. The virus does start to replicate. Now your immune system, which has been primed to react to that, will then you know jump into play and and eliminate the virus, but you're already infected. So why not do the, the best thing, which is social distance and wear a mask. It's the most powerful thing you can do. And this administration has just been horrible at, at modeling good behavior. Well, yeah, don't get me started on um, fake rights. Uh, there are these, all these, the United States is full of constitutional experts that talk about rights that just don't exist. And one <laughs> of them is the right not to wear a mask. Or oh, another way to think of that is the right to infect others. No, that right is not enshrined in any <laughs> amendment to the constitution. And that is, but that's, that's uh, I'll take off my other hat. Um, so, uh, so you are running around, uh, you are talking, you're on CNN, you're um, working with the advisory committee. Um, and so I take very seriously your, um, your statement that this is a huge technological achievement. Um, I take it though, for the, for the public to understand, this has been, people have been thinking about mRNA as a possible vehicle for how long? Well, certainly at least since 2005 and probably even before that. I mean, it's interesting at the University of Pennsylvania, we have Drew Weissman, who's been doing work on messenger RNA and messenger RNA as vaccines for a while. So yes, and in fact, when SARS-CoV-1 when SARS sort of raised its head, messenger RNA vaccines were considered, and that was like 2002, 2004. And same with MERS, which came up about 10 years later. So it's not, it is a, it, we don't have any current messenger RNA vaccines, that's true. But the, the, the strategy is not, um, is not that new. We're, we're, right. We have been working on it even with other viruses or bacteria like you know, human immunodeficiency virus, influenza, uh, malaria, TB, et cetera. So it's not, people have been working on this. So. And, and it, it also, remember messenger RNA is in all our bodies. I mean, we, we, use, we all have messenger RNA in the cytoplasm of our cells, which then gets translated to protein and our cells make proteins all the time. So it's not, it's not like something we haven't seen before. Right. Well, so, it, it, 
So I guess the big question now is how do you get enough doses in the United States? This is my last question. How do you get enough doses in the United States? Um, and what the news is reporting that the Trump administration had turned down or had failed to secure enough of the Pfizer vaccine. Do you feel confident that we're going to have enough vaccines from the other sources as well? So right now we have two vaccine makers, Moderna and Pfizer. Um, Moderna made vaccines um, in warp speed. So the, your, your taxpayer dollars paid for that vaccine. Pfizer did this all on their own. And Pfizer has commitments across the globe. Um, Moderna also will no doubt also sell across the globe. Um, it's, it's, you're going to need just for tiers one, two, and three. Tier one is people who um, work in long-term uh, care facilities and or essential health workers. Tier two is other essential workers, so transportation, education center. Tier three are people who are over 65 or have high-risk medical conditions, you know, obesity, diabetes, uh, lung or heart disease. Those three, three tiers alone, which is the first tier, before you get to the general population, the healthy, younger general population, it's about 150 million people for a two-dose vaccine. That's 300 million doses. I, I know that, that uh, Dr. Fauci said he thought we could be there in April. That would surprise me. I mean, right mm -hmm. now we have 40 million doses. We, in theory, can make 5 million doses a week, five million, enough vaccine for 5 million people a week. Uh, even then, I mean, I just, I just see this as the beginning of the summer for next year before we get to the general public, but I hope I'm wrong. I, I do hope I'm wrong. And and what do you think about the Johnson & Johnson possibility or some of these others in line? Yeah, so AstraZeneca looks like it is, it is tripping a little bit. I mean, it's stumbling out of the gate. Uh, yeah. for, oh, we won't go through all the details, but suffice it to say that there's a number, there's too many questions that have come up with that vaccine. Johnson Johnson's been very quiet uh, under the, in, in this age of science by press release. They've, they've actually come up with very little. The, the good news about Johnson & Johnson is one, there is commercial experience with that kind of vaccine. The so-called replication defective adenovirus type 26 was used as part of the Ebola, the way to eliminate Ebola from West Africa. So there's experience with it. Two, it's, it's a single dose vaccine. It's not a two dose vaccine. And it's refrigerator stable, much more stable than the Pfizer vaccine. So there, there's a lot of advantages to that vaccine. We, we haven't seen any data yet. The, the, the last uh, uh, estimate I heard was that we would have data by end of January, beginning of February, but then I just heard a rumor that we're gonna have it sooner than that. So we'll see. We, we need as many vaccines as we can to get this population immunized. Right, right. Oh, well, th th these are crazy times and we need leaders like you. So I wanna thank you for your expertise and your kindness. Uh, and I know that the parents who are gonna be listening to this out there are gonna be so grateful and, and the child advocates. So thank you so much. And um, well, and I hope you have a great holiday. Really, really great. <laughs> you still enjoy. <laughs> Take care. Stay safe, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Marcy Hamilton and I am the founder and CEO of Child USA. Uh, a national think tank to end child abuse and neglect. And uh, I just wanna say happy holidays. This was such a difficult year. 2020 was challenging in every possible way, um, but at least we had virtual, right? <laughs> and we were able to charge forward. And I am so proud of my staff, uh, the amazing attorneys, social scientists, and postgrad fellows at Child USA who have produced amazing work, uh, even in the midst of a pandemic. We made progress even uh, with statute of limitations reform this year, um, which is kind of shocking uh, given that many legislatures were shut down. 
We also have, um, we're in the process, we will very soon be publishing our annual report, which describes all 50 states and the territories, statutes of limitations for child sex abuse in understandable language and helps everyone, uh, not just lawyers, to understand where we are on SOL reform, which of course is one of our signature achievements. Uh, we also launched a really great CLE service, uh, series with uh, almost 500 hours of attorney uh, teaching in the field of best practices on child sex abuse litigation uh, with some of the leading attorneys in the United States. And uh, we will have more of that uh, uh, coming in uh, January and February. And uh, uh, December 10th is James Marsh. Uh, the incomparable James Marsh on online exploitation. Um, but it, we are, we marry the best social science with the best law. And so this has been a breakout year for Child USA. And we have um, just uh, been so blessed uh, because we have been able to analyze really strong and copious data on abuse in the Catholic Church abuse in elite sports, uh, abuse in the Boy Scouts. And um, we now have a grant uh, in partnership with the CDC to study abuse in schools. So um, we're determined to find out the evidence-based best legal analysis answers to these problems so that our kids will be safe. Child USA had this successful year in 2020 because of our supporters. We are so thankful to you for your generosity that makes it possible for us to push against the frontiers and really find meaningful ways uh, to end child abuse and neglect. We wish you the best for the holidays uh, and a happy and healthy 2021. Thanks.